For those of you here last week, we spoke about the reality of a new kingdom coming for God's people. A land flowing with milk and honey. A land of of peace and prosperity. As we near the end of the book of Joshua, Yahweh has now given that to His people. They have taken possession of the promise. Yes, there are pockets that still need to be settled, but for the most part, God's people are settling in the land. And yet as these people settle in this land of peace and prosperity, their their world hasn't changed, the world around them. Their own hearts and the condition of their hearts hasn't changed. No, death and distraction still abound in their midst and in their lives. And so Yahweh, as they settle in this land, wants to ensure that this will be a land of refuge and a land of worship, a land of justice and a land of mercy. And that's what we're reminded of as we come to this passage in our study of the book of Joshua. And it's a message for us still today. And as we will see, it's a message that's for us to an even greater degree. Two truths from these two sections of Joshua that I want to focus on and and meditate upon. And we're going to spend our majority of our time on the first one. And it's simply this. God provides refuge for the guilty. God provides refuge for the guilty. As Joshua is dividing this this tract of land that is known as the land of Canaan, he makes sure that he's following through on instructions that have already been given to Moses years ago, both in, in giving away certain portions to certain tribes who had been promised those portions of land, as well as establishing what we learn here about in chapter 20, these so-called cities of refuge. Six cities, three on each side of the Jordan River, were to be situated throughout the land of promise as safe harbors for the guilty. Now, we first learn about these cities of refuge as Yahweh gives these instructions to to Moses way back in, in Numbers chapter 35. You see, in the wisdom that is God, God had devised a provision for those who unintentionally cause the death of another. See, these cities of refuge that God establishes here in Joshua chapter 20, uh, these are not cities that are filled with, with, with hardened criminals that are fleeing the law. No, these are cities for those who had made terrible mistakes. You see, in that ancient culture, and indeed in God's law, as Numbers 35 goes into greater detail about, the killing of another human being meant that you yourself became prey, that you yourself became the hunted. 
You see, the male relative closest to the one who had been killed became what was known as the avenger of blood, who not only wanted to, but was expected to, in some way, hunt the guilty person down and kill him. As God had told Noah way back in Genesis 9, chapter 6, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. But the question remained, what about manslaughter, as we would call it? What about the unintentional killing of another person? What about for those who simply didn't mean to? An accidental death, Deuteronomy 19, gives a little more specifics. It says this, if someone kills his neighbor unintentionally without having hated him in the past, as when someone goes into the forest with his neighbor to cut wood and his hand swings the axe to cut down a tree and the head slips off the handle, strikes the neighbor so that he dies, he may flee to one of these cities and live. You see, in that day and age, in that culture, an accidental killing didn't automatically mean that you were going to be thrown into a court of your peers and judged fairly. No, it meant you were on the run. You were on the run like a murderer with no time maybe for the facts to even be sorted out, no time for the the case to be examined and, and verified. And so do you see what the Lord is doing in a broken world? He's caring for His people. He's decreeing that these cities, a needed protection for the people of God, should be in place. And all of this, of course, highlights the sacredness of life and justice to the Lord. And and you need to hear that amidst a a story, a book that's filled with judgment and and sin and judgment against that sin resulting in, in death. We need to be reminded that none of this is thought of lightly. That death is no serious matter. It's no small matter, but is a serious matter to the Lord. But this passage, I think, is not, it's not simply to give us a picture of, of, of God's character. It's not simply to give us a picture of the fact that he cares for his people or the fact that he values human life. It's here to point us to the fullness of his character displayed in our Redeemer displayed in Jesus, the one who we've sung of, the one who we've gloried in. You see, God provided a refuge for the guilty here, a tangible refuge in ancient Canaan. And brothers and sisters, friends, God still provides a refuge for the guilty today, tangibly in the person of Jesus. Hebrews chapter 6, so when God desired to show more convincingly the promise of the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge 
might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope. We have this sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. It's Jesus. So let's camp out on this picture. Let's camp out on this shadow and reality that the Lord has given us here in Joshua chapter 20. I want to think about the parallels. I want to think about how the grace in Jesus in the new covenant is greater. And marvel again at the beauty of the gospel. Four things under this first point of God providing refuge for the guilty. First of all, this refuge is open to all. It's open to all. Did you notice verse 9 when we read the passage? Look again with me. This provision of refuge wasn't simply a perk of being an Israelite. No, the cities of refuge were open to everyone, the stranger sojourning in their midst. And so just like we saw with Rahab, just like we saw with the Gibeonites, we see the wideness of God's mercy to those who flee to him. And it's a wideness that continues in Jesus. The gospel of Jesus is not for the privileged. The refuge he provides has no ethnic, has no socioeconomic, has no language requirement. It is open to all. In fact, the good news of Jesus goes beyond this picture. It goes beyond this shadowy picture that we get here in Joshua 20 because this city of refuge was, was only for the unintentionally guilty. If you were a true murderer, the city of refuge wasn't for you. Go outside the walls and meet your fate. But the gospel says, no matter what you've done, you guilty of unintentional sin, you guilty of blatant rebellion, confess. Turn from that sin and flee to the refuge that is Jesus. Jesus says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Doesn't matter what you've done. That's the first thing, is that it's open to all. But secondly, this refuge is, is easily reached. See, geographically, these cities, uh, here in Joshua chapter 20, these cities were, were spread out all over Canaan in such a way that virtually anyone in the land of promise could reach one of those cities in a day's travel. And not just that, but the roads, the bridges, the signs were all required by God to be clear, to be kept, that anyone could find their way easily without hindrance to the place of refuge. And the gospel of Jesus takes it even further. Not only is the refuge in Jesus reached simply by faith. Believe that you need him. Repent of your sin and flee to his arms. But the refuge that is in Jesus 
it actually comes to you. If you're here this morning and you have never taken refuge in Jesus, you have lived your life as you have wanted to live it. And you feel, you feel the guilt of the wrongs that you have done. And you sense, or maybe you've heard, that there is judgment awaiting you. You're here this morning. Your being here this morning is no accident. Your being here this morning is Jesus, the refuge that you need, coming to you. And saying, you need me. And hide yourself in who I am. Revelation 3.20 says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. That's Jesus. That's Jesus coming. So not only is it open to all, it's easily reached. Well, thirdly, this refuge that God provides for the guilty is never closed. We, we've learned from extra biblical sources that one of the characteristics of the cities of refuge is that they had gates that were never ever to be locked. And so when the manslayer was on the run, he didn't have to be concerned about being caught by the avenger as he was seeking to gain entrance to the city of refuge. He need only run through the gates and then explain to the elders why he was there. Once he was in, he was safe. However, if it was found out that he was guilty of premeditated murder, then he must leave the city and face his fate. As we think about Jesus being the refuge that this points to, Jesus not only stands ready to save those who flee to him, but he promises that once he's got you, he's never going to let you go. John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. God has provided a refuge for the guilty. It's open to all. It's easily reached. It's never closed. And finally, it's the place where justice and mercy meet. See, the city of refuge, the cities of refuge, they weren't club med for those who didn't want to face the consequences of their actions, whether those actions were foolish or not. Sure, mercy was firmly found in the city of refuge, but there was also justice there. There was also consequences when harm was done. The, the manslayer still suffers loss as he is bound to this city. He must live apart from his home. He must live apart from his family until this is all resolved or until the high priest dies. Isn't that interesting? Verse 6, he must remain until the death of him who is the high priest at that time. Then the manslayer may return to his own town, his own home, to the town from which he fled. Now, we don't know. We don't know why this provision is here. We don't know the reasoning behind it. But this is clear. The death of the high priest, the shed blood of another, means that the guilty go free. Friends, it can't be painted any clearer for us 
This is the point of the whole book of, of Hebrews. This is Jesus where justice and mercy meet. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. To do what? To make propitiation. That's a big word, kids. Propitiation. It means a wrath-absorbing sacrifice. A sacrifice that appeases God's wrath. God provides refuge for the guilty. So the message this morning from Joshua chapter 20 is repent and run to that refuge. Whether for the first time ever or for the thousandth time, run to Jesus. Hide in Jesus. You know, my mom's presence at the end of the driveway that morning, it had its effect. But the reality is, to be safe from Chris, I needed my mom to be there 24-7, which she couldn't be. Thankfully, Chris abated. But brothers and sisters, whether you've been a Christian all of your life, or whether you're just now coming to Christ, it doesn't matter. We need the gospel every single day. See, this isn't just a picture. This isn't just meaning for those who are unbelief to see what God does for his people. This is for you, Christian. Because your sin won't back down easily. Your enemy will never back down until he is cast into the lake of fire. But Jesus is your safe harbor every minute of every day and forevermore. And so whatever you've done, whatever you've done this week, repent and run and find refuge in Jesus. What a great picture. What a great picture the scripture gives us this morning. Well, one, one more brief truth that I'd like to close with this morning, and it's really one to just further drive this point home, and it's this. God's refuge is the centerpiece of kingdom life. God's refuge is the centerpiece of kingdom life. Amidst all the names and all the plots of lands, much of which we skipped last week, in chapters 11 through 20. Chapter 21 highlights the plight of the descendants of Levi. We read just the beginning and just the end of the distribution of land that was given to the descendants of, of Levi. It was, it was a distribution that the descendants had to come and ask for. And that's a truth in and of itself that we can learn from. Is They knew they had been promised this. And they grabbed a hold of that promise and came to Joshua asking for what is rightfully theirs. But the interesting thing about the Levites is that they're not given vast amounts of acreage. What are they given? Cities. Cities and the pasture lands that outline those cities. Now don't you find it curious? Why do the Levites get cities? 
Well, there's a reason for this, and we got to take a step back. You remember, those of you who know uh, your Bible, those of you who remember the book of Genesis, remember the story way back in Genesis 34? We actually alluded to it not too long ago. In chapter 34 of Genesis, remember the story of the defiling of Dinah, the daughter of Leah? Dinah was, was raped by the men of Shechem. And then they wanted to take her, specifically Shechem wanted to take her as his wife. And Dinah's brothers, Simeon and Levi, would have none of this. And so they, they tricked Shechem and his father and all the men around him into being circumcised first. And then while they were recovering, they slaughtered the whole lot of them. Remember that story? We alluded to it when we talked about the Gibeonites. And because of this, because of this angry, vengeful thing, when Jacob blesses his sons in Genesis 49, he says this about the brothers. Verse 5 of Genesis 49, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. For in their anger they killed men. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. And so, when Moses was dividing the inheritance in Joshua 13, 33, a passage that we skipped, we read this, but to the tribe of Levi, Moses gave no inheritance. The Lord God of Israel is their inheritance. Now, what what exactly is going on here with the tribe of Levi? Well, what began as a curse that they will be scattered, the Lord turned into a blessing. You see, the Levites in the history of redemption, the history of God's people, the Levites became the chosen tribe to assist in the worship of Yahweh. And so way back in Numbers chapter 3, they were given this role in verse 7, they shall keep guard over him that is Aaron and over the whole congregation before the tent of meeting as they minister at the tabernacle. And so throughout the wilderness wanderings, you had these three lines of sons from Levi, the Kohathites, the Gershonites, and the Merarites camping around the, the tabernacle. They were camping around the place of worship, and they each had distinctive roles in the worship of God, roles that were vital to assist the priests in their duties before the Lord. And not only that, but in Moses' final blessing that he speaks over Israel in Deuteronomy 33, he says this to the tribe of Levi, they shall teach Jacob your rules and Israel your law. So what are you saying, Nate? Well, hopefully I didn't lose you in all that context and all that history. I'm so sorry if I did. We could say a lot about the Levites and we could go on a lot of different tangents about their role, but this much is true. The Levites had a vital spiritual function in the life of God's people and in the kingdom and in the land that is being inherited here. And so what does God do? He scatters them. He scatters them, not just to each of these six cities of refuge. Each of these six cities of refuge became a Levitical city, but also in 42 other cities that surround the land of promise. Why does God do this? 
Well, because worship, the refuge of God, is to be the centerpiece of kingdom life. A little well-known guy by the name of John Calvin writes this, as a kind of guardians in every district to retain the people in the pure worship of God, the Levites served. It is true, they were everywhere strangers, but still it was with the very high dignity of acting as stewards for God and preventing their countrymen from revolting from piety. They were everywhere to keep watch and to preserve the purity of sacred rites unimpaired. Now we can think about that in a variety of different ways, as I said, but here's what I want us to consider, just one thing. God is zealous that he is worshiped. God is zealous that he is worshiped rightly. God is zealous that he is worshiped consistently. And this reality is paramount in kingdom life. Now, that's a whole nother sermon. Maybe that's a whole nother sermon series. But for now, I'm just going to leave it there. The church, the gospel, the word, the sacraments are, are all things that we, we, we never leave them behind. We never outgrow them. They are to be the centerpieces of our lives, built into the fabric of who we are. So don't dare push them to the periphery. Run to Jesus that is your refuge. Make him the centerpiece of your life. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I ask that you, Holy Spirit, would take this word and it's spoken in weakness and yet it is a word that is powerful, that is good, that is helpful for your people. And so I pray that that which is inaccurate, that which is unhelpful would be easily forgotten and that which is true would be absorbed and digested and, and made part of the lives of your people. Father, we thank you for your grace. The grace shown so vividly not simply in your heart for your Old Testament people, but in your heart for people of all times, of all nationalities, as you have sent your Son, Jesus. Oh, may we, in all of our busyness and all that we are about, may we be about Jesus. Oh, Father, this I pray in that great name. Amen.